I'm Annie Fox. And I'm Laurel Pinson. And this is Workwives, conversations at your desk with the woman who knows you best. Workwives on today's episode. Laurel and I are going to be doing a, a reveal. I don't know, a confession? Is it a reveal? I thought you were going to say a soft shoe. I got excited. <laughs> Today, we're going to be doing a soft shoe jazz dance for you. No. Um, it's a podcast. It's a podcast. It doesn't work. It's, it's too visual. Where Laurel and I are going to con- confess, reveal our lost loves, which is not what you probably think. I feel like every time we say we're doing a lost loves episode internally, people, go, people are like, oh, that boy, like you're a little, oh, that girl. That yeah. girl. Not better than that. It is the passion or the the job or the pursuit that you put down in order to pursue something else. And for both of us, obviously, it was um, it was journalism and publishing. But there was something that we both put down. I'm assuming. I actually didn't ask you if there was a lost love, but I assume it is. And we're not talking about theatre because that is still in your heart and still feels like an active yeah, volcano. That's sort it's not of a like, dormant volcano. That's sort of like an unofficial side boo. Yeah, like yeah. it's a side boo in my you. mind. Yeah, yeah. Same with my like science fiction novels. We're not talking about that. It's still an active volcano. Still in my an heart. active volcano. Okay, Laurel Vincent. I'm so excited for this. I can't wait. Okay. Tell me. Tell what me was of the your... thing that I put down. Yeah, tell me if you lost love. Well, so my thing that I put down. I don't know if it's fair to say that I put it down because let's face it, I nourished this very deep dream when I was a kid, but certainly never like acted on it. Well, maybe acted on it slightly. <laughs> so, so I really wanted to be a marine biologist. <gasps> yes. I was totally the kid like, like was so deep into sort of ocean literature picture books whenever we would go on vacation places i would be the person at like the wildlife preserve that was like how do the sea turtles make it from like when they hatch to like going back into the oceans there was also possibly the additional aspect that like a lot of the dudes that worked in marine biology (laughs) were kind of hot like you know maybe i was like 11 or 12 and may have gone on some kind of expedition where there was like a hot dude but generally speaking I just it sounds so twee to think about it now but I just really loved like sea life and was fascinated by it I can see you as if I don't know why but there is something in your face That says to me, like, t- marine biologist. Oh, totally. Like, like you're the, pulling like a something Jane out of a tank. But like Jane Goodall water edition. Yes, like exactly. a Like a blend of, like, Jacques Cousteau and Jane Goodall. Yeah, and, like, Ursula Undress. Like, I'm seeing you in, like, a one-piece swimsuit and with, like, Ursula some sort of, like, like utility belt because you've got to, like, crack open a shell oh, or save it. Or, you know, like, free a, free a turtle from a net. You know, like, oh, you're definitely. doing that shit. I pictured myself in, like, a sort of chic wetsuit. Yes. You know, hair always long. Oh, yeah, obviously. Never short, you know, despite the fact that I'm sure it would take – it would be unkempt from all the dives I was doing. Here is a question. In this alternate life, do you or do you not have a dolphin tattoo on your ankle? Discuss. Gonna say no. Okay, interesting. Just because I don't know that I'd be able to commit to dolphins. Like, I'm sure I would end up picking something really niche, you know? Like, Like a minimalist wave? Or something? Yeah, like a wave or, you know, it depend on what my focus was. Oh, you know, true. what if I got into like reef preservation mm-hmm. and there was some rare kind of fire coral that I was particularly <sighs> devoted to? I just don't know. <laughs> I just know. don't know. What... But I will say that if I really think about where a lot of this tracks back to, like if you go sort of back even earlier, the initial dream was really Mermaid Princess. Oh, you found source material. That's so the seed. That's the seed, the of seed I think. Yeah. It was pretty cool. I thought. All right. Your turn, Ms. Fox. I was going to be, 
A fashion designer. Ooh, chic. Yeah. I um, had a label when I was seven. It's called. It was called Hot Hearts. Hot Hearts. Yeah, and the symbol was a heart on fire. Ooh. Yeah, I don't know why. I think maybe I saw, like, Jesus imagery. <laughs> Spoiler alert. I was raised Catholic and went to a Catholic school. So maybe there was, like, this flaming heart thing that I was like, oh, chic on a blazer. Also, oh, like, a rock. <laughs> it's got, like, a rock band element It does have, like, a rock it. band element. But I would, like, do sketches of just, like, random clothing. I didn't ever want to be, like, a famous designer. I just loved the idea of, like, being able to turn clothes that I – had in my mind into things that were into my in my wardrobe like I never had ambitions to have a label that other people would wear I just wanted to somehow design my own clothes mm. but then as soon as I started using my mother's sewing machine I was like this shit is this shit's fucked. fucked oh no it for is me so as soon as I then, took biology oh yeah I was like what <laughs> like once I started going into like the deep sciences I was like yeah no like I'm much more of a humanities major the first time I, I remember like turning a like a dress into a skirt and then the moment I had to like sew a buttonhole I was like, You're like fuck nope. this this is forget that um but yes I had a label called hot hearts when I was like seven or eight and then when I I tried again when I was in college because I was broke and was going to the club a lot because you know it's early 2000s people were listening to a lot of house music and we we're wearing lots of like uh, Charlie's Angels, like asymmetrical like tank tops and shit. You yep, know, and like to yep. when that thing. I was see a thing. the time. Mm-hmm. I see the time. Express. Yeah. So I did a lot of like refurbishing existing t-shirts into other things. And at that stage, um, our mine and my friend's label was called Edwin's Revenge. Don't know why. Edwin's Revenge. Yeah. I don't. I don't know. Um, so what? Um, and this is sort of a a bit of a, a tangent, but mm. I it makes me think. I mean. I also really enjoyed sketching or drawing. And drawing to me is one of those things that I think about as this marker of when you become sort of exposed to either other people's perceptions or or like when you stop believing in yourself and start believing what other people think of you. Um, Because there's this age where I feel like I thought I was really good at drawing. Like I was like great at drawing. And then if you flash forward probably like 10 years from that, I – probably maybe internally thought I was okay at drawing but would not have like put my hand up in class as a person that was like oh I'm really good at this um and I feel like that's this weird this weird shift that happens you know between maybe age like five or six and age 15 you know where you start to maybe self-doubt creeps in or Mm, maybe mm. maybe you start to become aware of what it means to think you're good at drawing like are you going to make a career out of that you know like no I just I think I'm good at it. Mm. It's interesting that you say that age because I know that Cindy, our boss, Uh the editor-in-chief of Glamour, feels like that age, like six or seven, is like a really pivotal moment in sort of like, I guess, steering the ship of like what will ultimately take your focus in in your career. So we actually got the opportunity to interview Cindy about this topic um, and, in fact, what she was doing at age seven. And she kind of pushed us back. On our heels a bit. She did. On Turns this whole out, lost loves thing. It's true. Turns out she doesn't have a lost love. Well, or at least her love is her love. Right. You know? Exactly. She's been doing this for quite a bit. Um, but we'll let her tell you. So for this episode of Work Wives, we are delighted to have our boss on the podcast, an honorary work wife, Cindy Levy, who is our editor-in-chief. Um, so how long have you been editing Glamour? How long have you been at Glamour? 
since 1902. <laughs> 1902. <laughs> no, it, it feels like that some days, but no, actually since 2001. So you are living the and dream. And it took me so long to get onto the podcast. It's true. It's since it's 1902. Like, just been- <laughs> really, my work life starts today. Can we agree? <laughs> that is fair. So what, what was your job before you were editing Glamour? Um, I was a toddler. No, I, um, I had had a couple of internships also in magazines. I worked when I was in college first at a magazine called the Saturday review that went belly up about a month after I left there. And I I tried to take credit for the fact that like I left and everything fell apart, but I think it was sort of unrelated. The fun fact from while I was there is that the, the magazine was, had fallen on hard times and they had had to take on a lot of, um, sort of corporate clients and they were doing custom magazines for companies um, as a way of staying afloat and one of the companies was the Philip Morris companies and so we were producing PM the Philip Morris magazine during our off hours which nobody had told me the idealistic uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> 21 year old when I had uh, when I had applied for the job and so you know we were having to edit all of these stories and some of them I, I remember were these um, kind of reader mail pages where people who wrote to PM the Philip Morris magazine who were these you know longtime smokers and defenders of smokers rights would rail against the so-called Surgeon General. <laughs> <laughs> so called. Yeah. It all seems a little dated now. I, I don't put or that part it? on my resume. <laughs> Fake news. Yeah. Were you just riddling those pages with typos? Yeah. <laughs> I did not do my best from, work. Fuck you from Manhattan. I don't know who that guy yeah. is, but he sent in a letter. We'll just right. add him to the list. Right. So I worked at the, at the Saturday Review, and then I worked at the Paris Review, which is a literary magazine, which was a, a ton of fun, but kind of knew that even though I loved doing that, we got to edit out of George Plimpton's basement. He was this, you know, in- incredible writer who had always was always having William Styron and these other fantastic writers over for cocktails, and he would invite us up at the end of the day, so we get to like hang around with these great people who I had been reading in college. Loved that, but I kind of knew that I wanted to be somewhere where the topics that we were talking about and that the magazine was publishing were the kinds of things my friends and I were sitting around talking about. I didn't, I didn't really want to do capital L literature. I mm-hmm. wanted to just like get into the stuff that was the stuff of everyday life for the women I knew. And so that's the path that led me to Glamour. Did you grow up reading magazines knowing or hoping that you would be editing them one day? I didn't even know that was a job. Oh, wow. I mean, this was way before, you know, there was rea- there were reality TV mm-hmm. shows. There was no September issue. I, You know, I didn't know any of that. But I loved Seventeen magazine. I used to run home from school on the days that I thought my Seventeen magazine was going to be in my in my mailbox because I lived in a suburban town in Virginia and it was my only lifeline at the time to girls from other places and I remember one month they published I actually tried to find this spread recently they published a a spread that was pictures of it was basically like early street style it was pictures of girls on the street in Paris and what they were doing with their hair and their accessories and I was so mesmerized by it because it was literally like something from another universe it was like seeing outer space and and I loved that power that magazines had to just connect this community of women who might not otherwise know each other. I want to ask you about something that you mentioned to me in passing once, and you said that there was a particular age where you felt you could sort of identify what 
what was your core passion? Well, this is actually something that I noticed most as an interviewer. So I used to do a series in the magazine, as you guys know, because you, you work here, <laughs> called Step Into My Office. And so, you know, I would interview all kinds of highly placed women designers and executives and all of that. And, you know, when I would be asking them how they got into whatever it is that they're doing, they would all start talking about how when they were seven, they loved doing X, whatever it was. I remember that when I was, it was for me, it was eight years old, but I decided I was going to make a magazine and I went around and instructed all the kids that lived on my block that they had to submit stories to my magazine. Of course, like <laughs> nobody met their deadline. I had to produce all the content myself. <laughs> Eerily prescient. Um, Did and- you sell this magazine? Like everyone else had lemonade stands and you were like twelve ninety five no, sucked- for a limited edition, hand signed by the editor. I sucked at the business model. <laughs> I gave it away, and I thought oh, it was like a huge was success. advertising. At least? I, yes, I was not leaning in. No, but it just started to stand out at me that they all talked about age seven and how huh. this was a moment that whatever it is that they had gone on to greatness in doing. It had kind of crystallized in them as an interest then. And so, you know, I just I started to think like, okay, is that a basic good career tip about how to find out the thing that is going to be your life's work? Think about what you loved doing at seven. Fuck, I hope not, because I was literally like eat like eating myself into a candy coma and picking my nose. (laughs) Like if that was well, come on, you were doing that all day. not all the time. You're right, not all the time. If you had like an hour to yourself to like do something, it's true. what it's would true. your activity be? I was writing for sure. Well, there you go. I don't think it's true for everybody, mm-hmm. but it turned out to be kind of true for me. And I, I also feel like there's there's something about age seven, right? Because mm-hmm. it's it's sort of you know you're old enough to actually have interests of your own and you're not just this like you know little lump of flesh toddling around behind your parents or your big sister or whoever it is you know you have interests we all had interests at seven but the world hasn't kind of gotten to you yet I don't Mm. even mean it in a bad way or a good way but you're not yet fully immersed in the culture or super aware of it now obviously kids now are more immersed Mm. in the culture than you know than we were when we were growing up but but even so seven is still your kind of your little own quirky eccentric self what were you doing besides putting together your first issue of your oh it was all consuming annie there was was, time for anything there was nothing else for me (laughs) but were there other passions other interests that you had or that you saw that other people had and you were like oh yeah ballet oh i see that I mean, I guess so. I was just I was like fully into my own interests, which yeah. I think a lot of I think a lot of kids are. And it's funny because it, it, sometimes when I get interviewed for things, there's this question that people like to ask you of, well, if you weren't doing what you're doing now, what would you be doing? And I always feel like I have to make something up because you literally these are <laughs> well, like other people whip out these answers of like I you know I would be running a small inn in rural Vermont or <laughs> I, clearly I'd be a pastry chef <laughs> and was. but I, I've never really had a plan B and and I never felt the need to have a plan B. I mean, I guess that's maybe sort of goes to some people are real planners and mm-hmm. others are not. And I think it's good to have some kind of a plan, but I remember years ago sitting down with Leonard Lauder, the chairman of the Estee Lauder companies and a great giver of career advice overall. And he was 
he said, so what's your five-year plan? You know, I was like picking at my Cobb salad at Michael's. <laughs> I said, well, I'm not sure. I coughed something up. I said, I, you know, I'm really not sure. He said, you have to have a five-year plan. He went on to tell me all these great examples of people who had worked for him who had had five-year plans and had taken very specific jobs in order to get to where they wanted to be in five years. And I remember leaving that lunch in a cold sweat, and I called my friend Kristen, and I said, I just had lunch with Leonard Lauder, and he said, we all need five-year plans. <laughs> I'm coming over in an hour. Yeah. You better come up with something. She yeah. was like, oh, I don't have one either. Don't worry about it. <laughs> um, and at any rate, it, that is, you know, obviously it's good advice. You do need to think proactively about your career, what kind of skills you want to be acquiring, and, and all of that. And I would advise any woman who is who is listening to pay attention to that. But I also think that you can, if you're doing what you love you need to think about how can you do that better you need to have you know a bit of a strategy but not everybody lives their career in quite such a sort of how can I get to the other side of the chessboard way yeah and I think that's okay too I mean I'm not surprised that you've been on the same trajectory since you were seven (laughs) I mean, kind I, of delighted. I, have, I have no desire to be running an inn in Vermont. Um, no, I mean, but here's the other thing that I think that I think is part of this. I think we all kind of construct our stories as we go along, right? Yeah. You look back and it feels inevitable that you ended up where you ended up. And but there are a million choices that we all make along the way that can that can take you somewhere different. It was your sliding doors moment. Yes, I guess Gwyneth said this all before, yeah, she, didn't she? she? Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> she had two alternate hairdos, too. <laughs> You'd have, like, a long single braid or something oh, if you ended up in literature? My hair is way better in my current life than it would have been in, in my alternate life. life. Oh, my gosh, yeah. it's so true. Yeah, yeah. but I, I mean, the I know. The wardrobe also is pretty Oh, good. yeah, that's oh. It's Like, there's one more thing that I was thinking, which, like, makes me a little sad for for a lot of women now, which mm-hmm. is this idea that like there is this one perfect thing that you're supposed to be doing and you have to go find it and I feel like that could be really paralyzing and on some level like you just have to go like do something that is going to pay your bills and that you're going to be reasonably interested in and hopefully it comes out of whatever you you know were doing when you were little quirky weird seven-year-old you but this idea that like there is this perfect career and you're going to make a wrong turn if you do something that is not your personal destiny to do on this earth. I just feel like that's a really hard goal for a lot of people to meet and it leads to a ton of anxiety and I just don't think I don't think we should all be that anxious about it because if you do something with enthusiasm it ends up feeling like the right thing. Yeah. And I think that that maybe that the rise of the side hustle speaks to that that women have kind of decided, well, maybe my main hustle is like really good for a paycheck, but I'm going to keep up my uh my bonnet business, my hat, hat yeah, making business. Bon- that is like my go-to analogy. I don't know. My and bonnet, bonnet business. business. Well, so funny yeah. my mom's is driftwood sculpture. Oh, I've always been like just pretty forward moving and I think it's served me well Mm. in general I mean I don't tend to like I'm not the person who's like stalking the old boyfriends on Facebook it would probably be a lot more fun if I were Mm -hmm. I don't know yeah no don't know. No. Also, that's what besties are for. They stalk for you, and they just deliver information that's useful. I, I guess. I guess so. <laughs> you gotta outsource the stalking. I feel like once I've once I've made a choice, I kind of just you know shark like move forward yeah. in in that direction. And I think that I think that's okay. Mm-hmm. Sorry, is that and super like buzzkilly? No, I no. Know. I think there's something not, cool not... about like 
having your exes, right? And just like that's part of the story. Like you have your like the other passion that you maybe put down, but that's not a tragedy. It's like, well, that was the part of the story, but I chose to keep going yeah. with something else. Yeah, I, I guess I I just think there's a lot of hand wringing sometimes over finding mm. like the capital P perfect thing, mm. and most things get more perfect when you actually like commit to them and work on them. I'm satisfied in a way to know that you've been on this sort of laser-like path um, this whole time. Um, and I think that it's it's actually good advice for a lot of young women that you can have, you can forge a passion for yourself. You know, and you might not, it might not be love at first sight always, you know, and you shouldn't necessarily expect the rush always, you know, although it sounds like you kind of had it. Well, I think I think so, and I do think the seven-year-old thing is is really, really true. Like, there is something about how you are when you're that age that you are kind of like your truest self, and I think the reason my path was easy for me to follow is that it was basically like the grown-up adult version of, like, going around and asking a bunch of people for stories, you yeah. know? <laughs> That's and then, true. And then, you know, putting them in one place and and, and making people read it. I mean, I, I think that, you know, I do think there is something kind of like focusing and almost um, I don't know exciting about being able to look back on what you did at that age and figure out how you can make it life now I'm going to look for it now too also I'm going to ask it such a good question where our workplace is concerned I certainly will look at our pitch meetings in a very different light I think I mentally will see seven year olds oh right exactly (laughs) and your contributions (laughs) excellent thank you just like stapling them together see me rocking that that excellent third grade dance skin that I think I used to wear so much of Cindy thank you so much for coming in and hanging out with us thank you for finally having me into your little room it was an honor to be here it's a career highlight (laughs) yay My favorite part of interviewing Cindy was actually asking her about what she was doing before she came to Glamour. And she led off by saying that she was an intern at this place. And in my head, I thought, fuck, she went straight from intern to editor. And she said, I just <laughs> believe it. You know, like just the way that she set it up in my head. I went, wow, and believed it. I was like, you know, she's driven. Even her, but even her internships were infinitely more glamorous than any other internships. I mean, going from the Saturday review to the Paris review is an upgrade. But I mean, the Paris review, having cocktails with... Plimpton? Yeah, right. No big deal. Yeah, not what I was doing. I was looking for organic bananas for the editor-in-chief at the time. (laughs) Not easy to find circa 2002, let me tell you. Um, So, work wives, we thought that the Lost Loves episode was a good final episode for the season it seems like a good ending yeah and it's been a good season it has been we've done i don't know how many episodes 500 and really ignited what might have been a lost love for me of being a podcast host oh speaking of lost loves we had some episodes we wanted to do that we never managed to get off the ground i know Uh, there was that one that i really wanted to do about covens yes that's just relating like you know witches and covens to work wives they seem like work wives they are work wives definitely um i really wanted to do an episode shockingly everyone's gonna be really really surprised um on the word cunt (laughs) surprise and he just wanted an excuse to cuss more in this episode that's true um but i don't know cunts and covens has kind of got a ring to it it does sound like a good name for something else punk band punk band we could be like a modern performance art thing so that your love of theater and my terrible guitar playing kind of makes sense together. There is certainly a performance art piece in there somewhere. <laughs> there Whether is. we would get audiences to pay to see it, I don't know, but I'm here for it. Okay, so we've clearly got some practicing to do. Um, for Cunts and Covens. For Cunts and Covens and our, our new band plans. Um, but in the interim, go kiss your work wife.
Have a fantastic summer and catch you soon. Have a great summer. Workwives is produced by Ben Riskin and Acast. Our associate producer is Lizzie Logan, and we have support from the entire staff at Glamour. We're recorded right here at Conde Nast Studios in NYC.